Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, before we begin, I want to remind you, as I always do, this podcast lives at a website called wealthformula.com. And that's the place you want to be, not only because of this podcast, but also because of a number of resources that are available there. Lots of free stuff, uh, webinars. Uh, you can get on lists like the accredited investor list, which uh, will give you an opportunity to potentially join our investor club uh, if you're an accredited investor and get, uh, you know, Take, take some of this knowledge and actually put it to work. Again, that is uh, wealthformula.com, so go check that out. Now, as for today's uh, podcast, you know, this podcast that you're listening to would fall under the category of alternative investing, right? It's personal finance, alternative investing. It's not Dave Ramsey investing. It's not... You know, it's not stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, investing, that kind of thing. Uh, it is an alternative investing podcast. Now, this ecosystem of alternative investment podcasts is a sort of a small one, and, and there's a pretty good chance that if you listen to me, you've listened to a number of other podcasts in this space, and not to cast aspersions, but my general sense about a number of the podcasts that are in this space is that there's a lot of doom and gloom all the time, right? It's always that way. It's always that way. It, you know, anytime we get out of a recession and the economy gets a little hot, everyone's calling for the zombie apocalypse, right? They tell you to prepare for the worst, start growing your own food, you know, and buy lots of precious metals. Uh, because, of course, if the zombie apocalypse actually happens, the only currency that zombies accept are silver coins, so buy that monster box now. Actually, I have a monster box because I used to buy into a lot of this stuff. But anyway, I'll tell you what. If it gets that bad, there's no hiding from the zombies. Anyway, the bottom line is eventually the economy turns, right? It gets really hot and... The economy goes in cycles and then, you know, and sometimes it's years like we saw in the last one, expansion for a decade, right? Over a decade and, you know, all sorts of money is being made. And then eventually 
you run into a recession. You run into some, you know, some bumps in the road. You know, even if it is years later, the doom and gloomers at that point, they say they all turn to you and they say, you see, I told you so. They told you so. They predicted, though they've been telling you about this for the last five or six years. Well, they're right. They have been telling us for the last five or six years. And I will say this, that even a broken clock is right twice a day. But let me be clear. I understand that we live in unprecedented times of sovereign debt, record low interest rates. The Federal Reserve is printing money at unparalleled levels. Oh, yeah. And yeah, we have a hell of a demographic cliff coming in the next decade. But if you had listened to the doom and gloom crowd who was predicting the most recent recession for the last six years, you missed out on a lot of opportunity to make money. So the joke's on you. You see, our investor club partners, for example, we have Western Wealth Capital's one of our partners. Uh, they've been around for, well, six or seven years. Not that, that doesn't mean Dave Steele has been around for six, seven years. He's been around for a million years. But one of the investors early on who deployed into a number of these Western Wealth opportunities, a total of about $750,000 out of pocket initially into multiple deals, you know, $50,000, $75,000 at a time. Uh, six, seven years ago and today, that $750,000 total out of pocket investment is now worth north of $4 million in principle. Now, Take a look at how much profit you, or he, I should say, would have missed out on if he'd just held gold. Well, I'll let you Google that one. Yeah, there's some modest gains in the last year or so, but yeah, no thanks. I'm, I'm out of that one. The reality is that the economy is dynamic and you have to make money when you can. That's just the way it is. Now, if you are worried about a depression happening 10 years from now, and stop investing today, you probably will not fare as well as someone who's actively growing their wealth right now. Because building wealth right now is what creates resilience. You see, fear does not result in resilience. And that's what the fear mongers are doing. Most of them just want you to buy gold from them. But listen, if you listen to a lot of financial podcasts, I don't blame you for stashing your gold under your bed. I mean, there's a lot of opportunistic financial forecasters out there, as I mentioned, who are looking for you to just take your money and buy a bunch of gold from them. You know what I would love to see, though, is I would love to see all economists, especially those who are shilling gold, report a scorecard of all of their financial forecasts over the last decade. And what I think you would find is that in most cases, those who predicted the last two recessions would also have predicted another five or six more that didn't happen over the last decade. If you're good at predicting the future, show us your track record. That seems fair, right? Well, as it turns out, most of them don't. Most of them don't. And it's because of what I said. They just, you know, I mean, listen, you know, some of them have podcasts. You can go back and listen to these podcasts, you know, years and years of them saying the same thing over and over again. And they finally hit, you know, every six or seven years and they, they're doing an end zone dance. And it's crazy. 
Anyway, like I said, though, if you're good at predicting the future, show us your track record. Well, as it turns out, there is one group of economists who have been keeping score uh, on themselves since the mid-1940s and have predicted economic events with 94.7% accuracy since that time. The firm is called ITR Economics, and I listen closely to what they have to say because I love the fact that they are essentially, you know, scoring themselves and admitting when they get things right and wrong. By the way, they've got they got 2008 right with enough time for their people who follow them to to do something about it. You know, I don't I don't know that anybody could have predicted the COVID pandemic, but anyway, on this week's episode of Wealth Formula podcast, you are getting an opportunity to hear from one of their economists Taylor St. Germain, and uh, we're going to discuss the pandemic economy, but also perhaps more importantly, what's on the horizon in the near term, you know, a couple years out and even a decade out from now. You might be surprised by what you hear, but stay tuned to listen to this interview right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Taylor St. Germain. Taylor is with ITR Economics. Uh, we've had on the show members of that team. Taylor's an economic analyst for ITR. And ITR, as you know, is unique in that they keep track of their accuracy, unlike a lot of economists, and they are showing an accuracy rating of 94.7% over, well, gosh, I remember, I think it was something like 70 years, but we'll get that clarity in a minute. Anyway, Taylor, uh, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So 94.7% over how long? We've been around since 1948. Okay. Uh, so we were founded by a man named Chapin Hoskins back in the 1940s who developed our business cycle theory that we still use today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I do think it's interesting, uh, pointed out the fact that most uh, economic firms and economists don't really keep track of their calls. 
Intentionally, but yeah, even being a private firm, we know that's what our clients are most interested in. It's never something we're trying to hide. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, even a, uh, even a broken clock can be right twice every day. Right. <laughs> so, and we've seen that a lot, especially when, you know, things go south and all the doom and gloomers all of a sudden say, I told you so. Although they told us so about 10 times in the last year, you know, three years. So, uh, anyway, listen, uh, the last time we got to speak with someone from ITR, uh, we were a month into this whole COVID-19 lockdown, uh, which, you know, which was obviously unexpected. Um, and I think even when it started happening, the full impact and the full sense of how long this thing was going to be around, we just didn't get it. Can you give me a sense of, you know, I know this is a big question, uh, broad, but what, what happened to the economy over the past year and where are we right now in the big picture? Sure. As you know, we identify different phases of the business cycle. So I'll just talk in terms of GDP, mm-hmm. since I think that's more everyone's general economic benchmark. So what happened with GDP is during the first quarter of the year, we saw a mild decline in GDP. It takes two consecutive quarters of GDP decline for a recession. And the second quarter was actually the, the low point for us in terms of overall GDP. That was the draconian shutdown timeframe for us. So what happened in the first half of 2020 was the percent change from the first to second quarter was the worst percent change we've seen since the Great Depression. Um, so really just terrible. Worse than that, wasn't it? Wasn't it the worst ever or something? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. So it, that's exactly it. And again, that's just quarter to quarter, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. overall. Sure, GDP sure, points, sure. But quarter to quarter. Yeah. And But what we saw in the third and fourth quarter was that we started that recovery trend for overall GDP. So we saw the cyclical low point really hold up being the second quarter. And we saw GDP build momentum in the third and fourth quarter. Obviously not back to the pre-pandemic levels, but starting yeah. that recovery process. Yeah, yeah. So we're technically right now, uh, it doesn't seem that we are in any kind. Well, I mean, it's, hard, it's actually kind of hard to be in a recession after going through that kind of dip. Right. I mean, anything is positive, anything a little bit better than the previous quarter. I mean, it, it's kind of um, but, you know, so a lot of people during this time, especially when it was pretty clear what was happening, including myself, frankly, um, were bracing ourselves, uh, you know, really for an absolute bloodbath in the financial markets and in real estate. And whereas you did show a, you know, it was clearly a bloodbath for GDP. It really wasn't uh, for the markets nearly as bad as you might expect. What do you think kept this from being as bad as it really could have and perhaps should have been? Sure. Uh, I guess two points. Start with the financial markets first. Uh, you know, it is very clear that asset prices are overvalued at this point. You can understand that relationship by just looking at the S and P versus corporate profits and. Right now, we're seeing a deviation where the S&P 500 is significantly higher than what corporate profits suggest it should be. So to me, it seems clear that the market's overvalued. So the question becomes, well, then why did the market continue to do so well when profits don't support the valuations? And ultimately, what, what that comes down to, from my perspective, is the money supply. And whether it's, you know, our, our fiscal policies here in the United States um, or the stimulus money that's been injected into the economy, if you look at all of the metrics related to the stock market, that is clearly one that suggests we should continue to see equities perform quite well. Yeah, you know, and it's, what's interesting about that to me is that usually we, 
if for better or for worse, we we tend to, I think, historically look at you know recession and link that with you know a is a correlated um, you know equity market, right. uh, and and we really didn't see that. And I'm just wondering, um, you know. I'm sure you can't predict the future on this, especially on the market side, because you're really focused on GDP. But it's almost like you had a recession, but you didn't really correct your equity market. So how does that play out? I mean, because really then it's just the equity market just continues to go up and it goes up at a higher rate, presumably when there's not a recession and then a recession happens and, you know, nothing happens to the market. So uh, how... How do you look at that? Yeah, absolutely. The, f- the first thing to note is that if you look at the correlation between the stock market and GDP historically, just because there's a, rece- a recession or a correction does not mean the other is going to occur. Mm. Um, so we've, and that's why we like to utilize this business cycle methodology because you can very clearly see those things when, when they overlap. So I think that's one of the myths that needs to go away immediately yeah. is that if we have a recession, the stock market's going to correct. But, did, they, did that happen again, the last I, couple times though? Uh, I mean, cause I mean, I, you know, again, I'm just basing it as a non-economist on like, you know, what I remember, right. you know, is that historic, when you say historic, so last couple times it didn't, it, it did correlate though, didn't it? So there, there are times like, you know, before the financial crisis of 08, yeah. where we, we did see a correction um, right. and then back to the early 2000s and right. that recession we did, yeah. but we did have market corrections in between those time frames. not this last 10 years, sure. but earlier in the, in those previous Got two it. decades where the market's correct and GDP did not have a recession. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. Well, anyway, yeah, I, so I, yeah. I, I did interrupt you there, but go, go ahead. We were talking about uh, whatever I'd asked you before. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, ultimately, um, really what happened during this recession is because of the, the money supply and the action yeah. that the Fed was continuing to take by pumping money into the markets, um, the, we saw that money supply keep the stock market elevated. Now, obviously, it, it seems with the market being overpriced that we are in a bubble. So I think that where, where we're going with this is when does that bubble ultimately burst? Yeah. And we, so we look at when the next business cycle downturn for the economy is likely to occur. The next business cycle downturn for us is in late 22, early 2023 in terms of the next cyclical low point we'll experience. So given that we just passed through another extraordinary stimulus bill, it's likely the stock market will continue to perform quite well. But as we look out to that next downturn, which again, I don't want to make it sound like a recession, but when the rates of change peak and slow down in 2023 for GDP, that could be a time that that we're watching for that potential correction in the stock market. Um, Now, again, I'm not a financial advisor, so please don't adjust your portfolios based on what I'm saying. But with, again, I think it's important to note that as long as that money supply stays relatively high, it's likely equities do quite well. So I think one metric people should pay attention to is when we start to see that money supply decline significantly. And that's likely to be uh, a year or two down the road. Yeah, makes sense. Did anything about this pandemic, you know, economy and what came through from it surprise you guys over at ITR? Sure did. I think the biggest one for us was the inverse relationship that developed with disposable personal income and GDP. So if you look at GDP and disposable personal income, we call it DPI. Uh uh, Historically, they correlate with one another. So when we're in a recession, 
disposable personal income contracts as well. What right. we saw in this in the pandemic was the exact opposite, which is where uh, you know GDP declined, but savings rates and disposable personal income actually improved compared to one. Because we you couldn't first. go out and spend it, right, Taylor? I mean, isn't that isn't that what happened? No. That, that's exactly <laughs> that's it. And you know, I do think it's important to note that there's likely an imbalance yeah. between some of the the lower wage income individuals sure. and in the higher income. You know, I think of what I use myself as an example all the time. I'm yeah. you know a, a white collar individual through right. and through, and right. really all that changed for me as I was traveling less, but uh, and Going saving out to a lot of money less, because I was sitting and... at home behind a desk. So I think there's a lot of people like me out there. Um, and, and like many other people, I actually decided to build a home throughout the pandemic. There you go. And then, and then the other element of the other side effect of that with household, uh, you know, income or not, reserves going up is, is further, uh, stimulus to the economy when, you know, when, when, when things open up, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the consumer is such an important part of our economy, especially talking GDP. You know, two thirds of GDP is personal consumption at the end of the day. So coming out of this recession, we'll likely get back to those pre-recession uh, levels quicker than we did coming out of historical recessions like 08, 09, because that consumer is so strong right now. So, so you know, along that line, so what is next? Do you, do you guys look at right now? What are you looking at for the U.S. economy? Obviously, you've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but, you know, obviously those who predicted a V-shaped recovery a year ago were, you know, they were off. Uh, they, I mean, things kind of w- went up, at least in the markets, but uh, certainly not a V-shaped recovery in GDP. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we're shooting for a U-shape <laughs> Uh, is that what we're going to see as vaccinations take foot and things normalize? I mean, are you, or what, what kind of GDP growth are yeah. you thinking about before this late, uh, 2022 potential, um, uh, slowdown? Yeah. So, uh, a couple points, uh, that I'll make here first, our GDP forecast year over year for the end of this year is for 3% growth. So we do mm. expect 2021 to be up 3% compared to 2020. That growth rate stays positive through 2022. So 2022, we have 2.5% um, before it slows down to about 1.7% by 2023. So that is that slowdown that I was talking about, right. but still three years of very attractive GDP growth. Right. I think it's important to note that we expect the full recovery. That's what economists like to talk about, right? When, when will we see a new record high in GDP and recover from the pandemic? From our perspective, that's mid-2022. So we do have some more, uh, I, I guess, growth ahead of us, but it's going to take us a while to get back to where we were before the pandemic actually occurred. With the peak in mid-2022, huh? So yeah. it, the it, I want to be, so peaking the growth rates. Yeah, so right. the growth rates will slow down, but GDP, for example, by the end of 2022, we're expecting about 19.4 uh-huh. in terms of the uh, trillion dollars in terms of GDP. But 2023, it'll grow to 19.7, 19.8, but the pace of growth will slow down. Got it. So, you yeah. know, what I've always found compelling in first time, the Bolio brothers, I, I was ever exposed to them, the, the guys who are basically the, uh, uh, the you know, I guess the chief economist, the brothers, they're twins. Uh, yep. And the first time I, I met one of them was at a Vistage meeting at my house in the northern suburbs of Chicago. And um, what I found really compelling was this idea about the roaring 20s and then the depression uh, that ensues in the 30s. Obviously, that whole thing, without knowing about sort of these uh, black swan events, um, Mm -hmm. let's talk about the 20s. 
Is yeah. it is it still a roaring twenties ahead? Uh, has that prediction changed uh, at all after the whole COVID fiasco? No, no, it, it hasn't at all. And we still expect the 2020 decade to be one that that symbolizes growth really in its entirety. We do anticipate that we'll have a bump in the road in, in 2025, 2026, but it'll be a very mild recession, much more mild than uh, what we certainly experienced this last year. And that's normal for business cycles. So mm-hmm. that's part of normality. But the trend over the 2020s will be generally up. And in, in I think the big winners of the 2020s is mm-hmm. the the equity market and in, in real estate here in the United States in particular. And and then obviously you you have on the other end of that, you have the, uh, you know, the, the depression. Talk, talk about what goes into that. Why 2030s? And has that target changed at all? Because I remember talking to Brian Bullio, uh two years ago now, at least. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the, the message I took home on that was that it's 2030 because that's, you know, that approximates the demographic cliff with the boomers, along with the confluence of a lot of debt um, and that kind of thing. Now, obviously, the the, the level of debt has significantly uh, increased because of the pandemic. Does that yeah. change the timeline for any of this, whether it's the, you know, roaring 20s, the end of the roaring 20s into the depression or or is it the same? It is the same. Really, the way we view the the increased levels of debt is just more support for this really coming to fruition for right, us. So, right. for it, you know, in inside of ITR, we're we're sort of jumping for joy to watch this happen because <laughs> that means we're more likely right. right. Um, obviously, not something we're rooting for overall, but yeah. so that, that's the way we viewed. So, the concept around the twenty thirty Great Depression is that. We're going to see higher levels of debt. We're going to see higher levels of inflation as we approach the second half of the decade. And that's really the concern when we talk about the debt levels, because I think there's a lot of modern monetary theorists out there right now that say, well, it doesn't really matter the size of the debt as long as we can keep inflation low, which I don't know if I 100% subscribe to that, but I can understand the thought process the, the concern is that inflation is not going to stay this low, especially with the demand pull on this next decade. So as the inflation rises, interest rates rise, all of a sudden our debt becomes more costly to us. Mm-hmm. So that's that factor. And then on top of that, we have this demographic issue like you, you uh, mentioned, which is that the baby boomer generation is supposed to, is likely to be in the later years of their life at that point. And what comes with that is higher health care costs and increased social security payouts. And they're not working, right? It, it, exactly. Exactly. And uh, uh, the other problem is a lot of the wealth that they're sitting on, they're not spending. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're actually holding on to it. So, and this isn't just a U.S. problem, you know, China, Japan all have similar demographic issues, certainly Europe as well. So it is expected to be a worldwide phenomenon where these demographics align up with very high levels of debt, again, not just a U.S. problem, and uh, higher levels of inflation where we're lifting interest rates significantly. And that's, and then we also have to think as a result of all this happening, you lose confidence in your, in the global currency, which of course is our U.S. dollar still. And uh, as you see investors pull back from that due to concerns with what's going on in the U.S., that ultimately triggers this. Right. Uh, 
And and that target again is is it's twenty thirty right on the the. I mean, not I'm not saying that that's exactly when it's going to happen, but that's the projection is twenty thirty. Yeah. Everyone always wants a day where. It's happen. Can you yeah. is it June second? Yeah. You know? That's right. So we say twenty twenty nine twenty thirty is when this is expected to. Uh-huh. to take. Well, the reasoning for that is there is a ten year business cycle theory sure. in the U.S. economy. If you look back to every 10 years since World War II, the U.S. endured some major recession. You even think about now, you know, rewind 10 years, we're in the financial crisis, then the early 2000s, you know, the early 90s. So it holds up uh, pretty true. And that's part of the long-term business cycle theory. So this recession that's occurring in 29, 2030 is normal. It's the severity that's not normal as a result of the factors we just mentioned. I'm curious about, you know, when we talk about these kinds of predictions and the accuracy Taylor over the, you know, since 1948, what comes to mind for me is such major changes in the economy. And I, you know, I think about, if you're talking about, you know, 48, I mean, you know, you've got the seventies and coming off the gold standard and you've got hyperinflation in the eighties and, you know, the cranking up of the interest rates. I mean, how do you guys in ITR look at the economy do you kind of avoid some of these i mean you can't you can't like look for a pandemic you can't really you know in my mind what happens in the late uh in in the late 20s and uh, maybe the early 30s if if what you're talking about is true is that there'll be some sort of potential global reset you know but how do you how do you take account of all of that or do you even bother is this just kind of um you know it is what it is yeah, you know, I think the number one question we get are is are there ways that we can avoid this? Yeah, um, and, and I think that's ultimately what gets at your question. And mm-hmm. from our perspective, it's too late at this point. Even with major, uh, you know, government intervention, it's it's likely too late, especially given how much we just increased our our levels of debt. You know, there's often um, you know people talk about cutting spending mm-hmm. and raising taxes as two possible ways to avoid this. And that's where we have to, as much as we want to ignore politics in our analysis, start to consider that in the political environment that we have in the United States, either of those measures are going to be incredibly challenging. Uh, I think the current administration is seeing that already with their potential tax increase. Now, that being said, I do expect that we will see higher levels of taxes throughout this decade because eventually this comes to light. But again, ultimately, it's too late to reverse that trend at this point from from our perspective. And and on the other concept, nobody's going to run on for president on cutting spending here in the United yeah, States. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And so let me ask you this because now I know I know my audience, and everybody's like a depression. What is a depression exactly, and how is it different from a recession? Sure. The reason we're talking about a depression is due to the length of the decline. So most recessions that you look at, most business cycles are uh, typically two to three years from top to bottom of the cycle. Um, This is expected to be similar to the 1930s, which is why we put the depression in there Mm -hmm. in terms of the severity, because, you know, we do expect this to be more like a three to five year phenomenon. And it Uh it will take us much longer than what we've seen in historical recessions to build back to those pre-recession levels. So it's it's really us uh, utilizing that depression word because of the similarity between now and 1930. Our, our, I believe it's our CEO, Brian, who uses the quote, the only difference between the 1930 depression and the 2030 depression is we'll have an app that tells us where to get our food this time. <laughs> oh no, that's terrible. 
but but yeah, I guess I guess that's uh, right. I guess that's right. So you know, in, in terms of that, so you're looking at sort of essentially long term economic, uh, you know, recessionary activity. You talked about the 1930s, and obviously, depression there was really about what it was three different recessions, right? Right. In that scenario, is there any way that markets stay inflated? From our perspective, no. There still are certainly financial markets that we expect to do better than others during this time. Uh, the three areas we've identified are bonds in Australia, Switzerland, and Canada. Um, those tend, those money markets tend to perform quite well when the economies are in a complete catastrophe. Uh, but uh, other than that, you know, we really do expect this to be all encompassing. Uh, you know, I think healthcare will continue to do quite well during this time because of those baby boomers. So there's segments that we can look at for investment opportunities, but this is very much stock market correction, housing market correction, GDP recession that we're talking about. So tell me one last thing I want to ask about is one of the reasons I really like having uh, representatives from ITR on is that you guys tend to tell us things that others aren't telling us. What's yeah. what's the what's the difference in terms of how ITR looks at economics versus others? I, I think it's the the really it's understanding the phases of the business cycle, and that's what we we work with we have a consultative programs with our clients and that's really what we work with all the executive teams on is planning a business cycle ahead so for us 2021 is uh you know we're our plans are set in stone with our clients for 2021 we're talking 22 23 at this point uh 2021's already already gone by from our perspective if you're planning for 21 now you're way too late um so i think that that's very beneficial the other uh in it's the the way that we look at the different business cycles. So we can tell, you know, our clients, which areas that we see significant opportunity on, where to focus their time, their energy, their resources that others don't. And I think there's a few important ones that are coming up in the near term. And then certainly in the longer term, the first thing to consider is, uh, you know, the economy's recovering. We keep talking about that, but if you're in the commercial construction space, this is not going to be a fun year for you. And that's different from what I've seen in other firms forecasting. So if you're hospital construction, medical construction, office building construction, all of those areas are projected to have very negative years this year. The, the only really bright spot we see is warehouse construction because of e-commerce. So I, that's been different from a lot of what I've been seeing out there. The, uh, I guess the other uh, thing that I would push people towards is now is a great time for M&A. Uh, and that's another thing we identify by the position in the business cycle. We are at the low point of the business cycle and we have growth ahead of us for the next three to five years, really until 2025. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing to invest in this growth? Is that CapEx expenditures, hiring more people, buying other businesses? We ask our clients all the time, what do you wish you would have done in 0809 um, that, that you can do now? And the number one answer is always buy more businesses. And so you, I think it's important that we look at this decade in a similar light to the past one, which is we have this entire decade of growth ahead of us to prepare for or to prepare for a significant collapse at the end. So we really need to do everything we can to take advantage, especially of this first half in order to prepare for the second half and look at assets that are tied to inflation. That's the so right spot. For buy as many businesses and real estate as you That's can right. now and sell everything in 2029. <laughs> Yeah, maybe a little earlier. I'd say 2025-ish uh, uh, would be a good time to sell so you can still get those residuals for a few years before things go up. 
<laughs> very good. Very good. Well, tell, tell us a little bit more about how ITR works, how people can get involved. I know we've, uh, you know, there's a newsletter. My audience is a lot of, you know, business owners and, uh, you know, professionals who are interested in the, in, uh, in the economy. How, how can uh, people get involved? Absolutely. So we, we have, we, we characterize our, our services in the three different buckets. The first I think will be very useful to your listeners, which is our subscription, which is our trends report that we have numerous different economic forecasts that we've talked about today. We have construction, manufacturing, financial, and core section. So there's over 30 forecasts in there. It's just a great way to stay up with us month to month. Uh, we also are on every social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, we have our own Trends Talk podcast where we just have a short podcast about current events. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a great way to stay up with us. But we also have the ability to forecast companies' data. So we're not just vertical market forecasters. We'll actually forecast your company uh, three years into the future as well, which I know can be really helpful for planning. And then, of course, we have uh, keynote speaking events. If you have a group uh, that's interested in, in hearing what we have to say about this next decade, um, that's another great way to utilize us as well. Yep. Yep. And we actually had one of your colleagues out to the last live event that we had. So that was, uh, that was fun. What was the name of the podcast again, just because we have a lot of podcast listeners here? Sure. It's called Trends Talk. Uh, you can find it on whatever platform you listen to, but yeah, just short five to six minute podcast for the busy person that wants a quick update on what current events going on that week. That's Trends Talk. And this is uh, very good. And this is a uh, Taylor St. Germain. Taylor, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I always uh, really enjoy talking to um, the ITR folks because, again, you know, uh, I, I love transparency. I love that you know, self-acknowledgement of being right or wrong. Tell us your record. You know, um, again, if you if you look at a group like w- from the investor side, you have Western Wealth Capital, who's one of our partners. And every time our accredited investors watch one of those webinars, which you can only watch if you're accredited and you're in our group, you know, there's a list of every one of the divestments since the beginning of the company. Uh, now, Yeah. And listen, if I've learned anything over the past several years in my own development as an investor, it's that the integrity of the people you are working with is just as every bit important as their skill. And transparency is a really big part of integrity. In a shortage of either integrity or skill, either one of those can be really uh, deleterious to your pocketbook. So, Anyway, watch out for that because, uh, you know, in reality, you know, we've got these economists, which is really fun to listen to and uh, hopefully get some good information on how to uh, deal with our own investing. At the end of the day, these economists are making predictions and there's often little skin in the game if they're wrong. Our business as investors is different. Being wrong or being, you know, not being told the truth can actually hurt people financially in our business. So it's something that you have to be uh, very careful about. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview. ITR is, you know, is really one of my favorite uh, economic groups to follow. I encourage you to to look into their newsletter. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. That's it from me this week. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. 
Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.